Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. This is episode 56, Cossacks and Tartars. Thanks for listening in. So, last time out, we took a look at the bigger picture across Russia, Europe and the world in the year 1725. And the key points to take away were that in Russia, or to be concise, the Russian Empire, Peter the Great was dead and his second wife, Yekaterina, or Catherine, was about to take her turn at being in charge. The Russia that she would go on to reign over was at peace, and so pretty much was the rest of Europe. But this state of affairs wouldn't last long, another eight years in fact, and that was down to two things really. One, the underlying and seemingly never-ending struggle for continental supremacy between Habsburg Austria and Bourbon France, and then secondly the death of the Polish king Augustus II. But we'll get to all of that in the fullness of time. In Asia, Mughal India and Safavid Persia were in decline, Qing China was approaching its apogee, and Tokugawa Japan was, behind closed doors, doing, well, its own Tokugawa kind of thing. The great European maritime nations, France, Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands and Great Britain, were extending their influence over large chunks of the globe. And colonies, large and small, had been established in Africa, in Asia and in the Americas and the dark, malevolent Atlantic slave trade was slowly and inexorably extending and deepening its reach. Something else that was taking root, this time in Western Europe, and that I briefly touched on, was the Age of Enlightenment. Now I'll be doing a specific episode all about the Age of Enlightenment and specifically its impact or non-impact in Russia in the new year. But for the here and now, I'll just do a quick summary. 
and I'm indebted here to Lumen Learning's concise overview that's outlined in section 21.1 of their series on the history of civilization number two. I'll post the link in the show notes for anyone who's interested in doing some further reading after I've run it past my legal team, of course. These developments, which followed and partly overlapped with the European exploration and colonisation of the Americas and the intensification of the European presence in Asia and Africa, made the Enlightenment the starting point of what some historians define as the European period in world history, the long period of often tragic European domination over the rest of the world. Hmm. Okay, thanks Damon, but you sort of said most of that last time. Can you please just get on to what we're doing this week? Yeah, I suppose I have gone on a bit, haven't I? So let's do that. So in this week's episode, we're going to be taking a closer look at two groups of people, the Tatars and the Cossacks, who in their own separate ways have had and will continue to have a sizable impact upon the history of Russia. I say a closer look because up to now, I've only really made cursory or brief mentions of both, and certainly in the case of the Cossacks, but perhaps also for the Tatars. I've sort of chucked them into the story without really providing the basics, like who they were, and where did they come from, and where did they live, what were they up to at the start of the 18th century, and what's their position in Russia today. Okay, that's enough preamble. If you're ready, and I think you are, let's crack on and do some history of Russia. And we'll start with the Tatars because they are the slightly easier of the two subjects to put into some kind of logical perspective. Plus, we'll need to understand their story before we get to the Cossacks. Now, I said the Tatars would be easier, but immediately we hit a problem. How do you actually say the word Tatar? Well, I've done a bit of research into how the word should be pronounced, and the consensus appears to be strongly in favour of Tata, or maybe the subtly similar Tata, but not Tata, which I'm happy about because that sounds remarkably similar to the way that people of my parents and maybe my grandparents' generation and social standing informally said goodbye to one another. And I'll give you an example. Okay? All right, then, I'll be off. Ta-ta. Okay, so, ta-ta it is. And with that sorted out, let's get into our next problem. Who were the Tatars? And for that question, there are two answers, and annoyingly, they are both correct, and they both sort of exist in parallel. Okay, so answer number one. The Tatars who inhabited northern Mongolia and the Lake Baikal region in southern Siberia were one of the many nomadic Turkic-speaking tribes who emerged from the breakup of the Xiongnu Empire in the 5th century CE, and that's AD in old money, to form what was called the Turkic Khaganate. Some sources also believe that the Tatars may have been related to the Cumans or the Kipchaks who lived further to the west. Either way, by the 12th century, and as mentioned back in episode 17, Genghis Khan, the Tatars were one of the many Turkic and Mongol peoples, the others being the Naimans, the Merkits, the Karaites, and the Mongols themselves, 
who dominated the Greater Mongolian stroke Siberian region, and who, in the main, generally rubbed along together, but would also, from time to time, take part in random raids, plundering and revenge attacks on each other. Gradually, though, the Mongols gained the ascendancy, and by the 13th century, just before the invasion of the Rus lands, their empire represented a diverse mass of different peoples, Tatars included, which, to all intents and purposes, was known or perceived from the outside as simply the Mongols. However, and now we come to answer number two, Batu Khan's campaigns of 1237 against the Ruslands and then in 1240 against Poland and Bulgaria featured a large number of ethnic Tatar troops, and during the subsequent occupation of these territories, it was the Tatars who tended to predominate. So what had started as a Mongol invasion and a Mongol occupation gradually morphed into, at first, the Golden Horde and then the Tatar yoke. And probably by the late 13th century, and certainly by the early 14th, to the Rus and the Europeans, it was the Tatars who were, who were perceived as being their rulers and oppressors, and not the Mongols. By the late 14th and early 15th century, the Golden Horde stroke Tatar yoke had started to disintegrate, and its westernmost successor states, Kazan, Astrakhan, Sibir and Crimea, which by now had all converted to Islam, were referred to as the Tatar Khanates. And that's partly due to the fact that the majority of people living in these areas were ethnically Tatar, or saw themselves as being ethnically Tatar. And partly because for a couple of centuries, the collective name for the invaders from the East had morphed from Mongol to Tatar. So, in a nutshell then, the Tatars were originally known as the Tatars. Then they were lumped in with everybody else and were known collectively as the Mongols. And then in Europe and the Ruslands, the word Mongol gradually became replaced with the word Tatar. There, simple. And so, whether you were a Mongol, or a Tatar, or a Kuman, or a Naiman, or a Merkit, you were now all lumped together as the Tatars, or, collectively, Tartary. Now all of this is kind of similar to the situation that occurred in England or Britannia as it was known when the Romans departed in the 5th century. The Saxons, Angles, Jutes and Frisians then came across from mainland Europe to fill the void. As the centuries passed, Britain became known predominantly as a Saxon kingdom, particularly in the south. And no one really mentioned the others. And then at some such point, it became an Anglo-Saxon kingdom, and then finally, an English kingdom. And the term English comes not from Saxon, but, that's right, from the Angles. Anyway, back to the Tatars. The first three of those Khanates that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Astrakhan, Kazan and Sibir, were conquered by Moscow and their Tatar inhabitants were incorporated into Russia. That just left the Khanate of Crimea, which, as we know, went down a separate route and became a vassal state of the Ottoman Empire, which, in 1725, it still was, and in fact would be, until 1783. Over the centuries, the Tatars had moved on from their nomadic roots and had slowly developed an economy that was based on mixed farming, 
herding and trading, all of which continue today. But outside of those mainstream activities, there was, and again still is, a strong tradition of skilled craftsmanship, particularly in wood, metal and ceramics. And during the 18th and 19th centuries, when the Russians expanded their empire into Islamic Central Asia, it was the Tatars that they turned to, to fulfil the roles of commercial and political agents, teachers and administrators. Twice during the 20th century, the Tatars attempted unsuccessfully to form their own sovereign state in 1919 during the post-revolutionary Russian Civil War and again in 1992 during the breakup of the Soviet Union. Today, the Tatars are the second largest ethnic group in Russia, the Russians obviously being number one, and there are some 5.5 million Tatars living in various parts of the country, with the majority still residing in their old heartlands along the Volga River, in Kazan, which is the capital of the semi-autonomous Republic of Tatarstan, and Astrakhan, but with other sizable populations inhabiting the Ural region, western Siberia, and Kazakhstan. Ah, Kazakhstan, I feel a tenuous link coming on. So let's go back to the halcyon days of last January and episode 30, Ivan the Terrible Part 2, and the section where I was explaining Ivan the Terrible's attempts to gain the support of the Cossacks. And this is what I said. Now, I don't want to disappear down a rabbit hole and spend the next five to ten minutes going on about the Cossacks, as I plan to do a separate episode on them once the overall narrative is complete. Hmm. Well, the overall narrative isn't complete, but c'est la vie. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I went on to say that I think we need a brief description of who they were and why Ivan wanted them on his side. And then I added that, very briefly, the Cossacks, and the word Cossack is derived from the Turkic term Kazakh, which means free man or wanderer, were an amalgam of semi-independent Tatar groups and Slavic peasants or criminals who had escaped from penury and punishment in Poland, Lithuania and Russia. Okay, so all of what I said then is broadly true. But to be honest, it does need a bit more flesh put on a number of bones. So... Let's start with the etymology of the words Kazakh and Cossack. So for the word Kazakh, you've got two choices. Either it's a combination of the words for two ancient tribes who inhabited the eastern steppes, the Kaz, 
and the sack. Sounds a bit too simple though, doesn't it? Or it derives from the words for a free man in most, if not all, of the Turkic languages. For the word Cossack, or in Russian, Cossack, spelt with a Z or a Z, we have two broadly similar definitions. Cossack derives either from the Turkic word Kazakh, or is a loan word from the old Cuman language. Either way, the broad consensus appears to be that both Kazakh and Cossack derive from the Turkish languages and essentially have the same meaning. However, the Kazakhs are an ethnic Turkic group, most of whom live in the modern-day country of Kazakhstan, whereas the Cossacks were... Well, let's find out who the Cossacks were and whether or not they are still around today. Now remember, I stated the Cossacks were an amalgam of semi-independent Tatar groups and Slavic peasants or criminals who had escaped from penury and punishment in Poland, Lithuania and Russia. So let's take that first bit. Who were the semi-independent Tatar groups and were they real Tatars or perceived Tatars? And where and when were they doing their semi-independent kind of thing? Well, frustratingly, the various sources only guess or hint at who these Tatars were. Some state that they were descendants of the Khazars or the Cumans, others that they were nomadic Turkic settlers who in the 15th century were looking for land, peace and freedom away from the confines of the Golden Horde, which they found in the far-flung lawless no-man's lands of the Caucasus, the Volga Valley and the so-called wild fields of eastern and southern Ukraine. Sounds idyllic, doesn't it? A life lived on the open steppe, away from rules and regulations, taxation and the powers that be. But these freedoms, real or imagined, often came at a cost, because you never knew what or who was over the next horizon. It could be a neighbouring group or tribe. It could be Crimean raiders or a foreign army or a sudden influx of desperate Poles or Russians from the north. And so these early Cossacks learnt from a young age to be constantly looking for signs of trouble and ready to fight to protect what was theirs and, if all else failed, run like hell or ride like wind. It was a tough environment that bred tough people. And gradually throughout the 16th century, that last group, the serfs, criminals and urban poor, escaping either from their lives of drudgery or from the Muscovite, Polish or Lithuanian authorities, merged with the Tatar proto-Cossack groups to form six main self-governing militaristic communities or hosts. And these were, from east to west, the Yaik in the Urals, the Greben in the Caucasus, the Volga, the Don, the Dnieper, and finally, to the west of the Dnieper, the Zaporizhian. As covered in previous episodes, the ones on Tsar Alexei in the late 16th century, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, struggling to protect its southern and eastern borders from the Ottomans and from the Russians, struck a deal with those Zaporizhian Cossacks and their leader or hetman Bogdan Kemlinski. In return for Cossack help and protection, the Poles gave the Zaporizhians land around Kiev, which for a while hosted the semi-autonomous Cossack-Ukrainian hetmanate. But it wasn't to last. A split developed in the Cossacks' ranks, with the majority faction signing a treaty with Moscow in 1654, 
which gave them protection from the Poles and, for a while, greater autonomy within the Hetmanate. In return, the Russians expected these Zaporizhians to protect their western and southern borders, and Moscow suggested that it would be better all round if they had sight of and final approval of any negotiations or treaties that the Cossacks undertook or sought with the Poles and the Ottomans. But apart from those stipulations, the Cossack hetman could pretty much do as he wanted in his own backyard, as long as he fulfilled his military obligations. Increasingly though, and as the years went by, Russia started to chip away at the autonomy of the various Cossack groups, particularly as they, the Russians that is, expanded their own territorial holdings. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the Don and Volga Cossacks were used as a kind of advanced pioneer force during the wholesale colonisation of the vast expanses of Siberia and Central Asia, and by the end of the 1800s, the number of Cossack groups had extended to 11. And for the record, the new ones were the Kuban, the Terek, Orenburg, Usuri and the Siberian hosts. But if Moscow pushed the Cossacks too hard, or demanded too much in return for, well, not much, the Cossacks would revolt. Large-scale insurrections took place in 1670 under the leadership of Stenka Razin, which we covered again in one of the Tsar Alexei episodes. And in 1707, there was an uprising of the Don Cossacks, which I briefly hinted at during one of Peter the Great's episodes. The biggest revolt, however, took place, or would take place, between 1773 and 1775, during the reign of Catherine the Great, and that's something we'll be getting our teeth stuck into, probably at this rate, in the spring or summer of 2023. By the late 18th century, Cossack autonomy had become further diluted. Each Cossack settlement, or Stanitsa, still continued to elect its own assembly, but now the hetman was appointed by the central government. Most Cossack males were also required to serve in the Russian army for, get this, 20 years, and the Cossacks' traditional social structure, which had been based on equality and communal land holdings, started to unravel, particularly after 1869, when Cossack officers and civil servants were allowed to own land privately and lease it to outsiders. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the Russians used the Cossacks to fight in numerous military operations and to suppress a series of revolutionary activities. And it's here during Napoleon's invasion of 1812 or the Decemberist Revolt of 1825, the Crimean War of 1853 to 1856, the First Russian Revolution of 1905, the Second and Third Russian Revolutions of 1917, and the subsequent civil war, that the enduring tradition and reputation of the Cossack soldiers and cavalrymen was established. And the imagery, what people pictured or imagined, were boots, baggy trousers, belted coat, moustache, big furry hat and rifle or sabre raised, firing on or riding into a crowd of panic-stricken enemy soldiers or terrified protesters. And it's always cold and it always seems to be snowing. In the Soviet era, and particularly after the White versus Red Civil War, and the Second World War, where large numbers of Cossacks had fought on the side of the Whites, 
and then the Germans, the authorities kept a close eye on the Cossacks and severely limited their autonomy and, to a certain extent, their way of life. However, in more recent times, there's been an upturn in the relationship between the Cossacks and the Russian state. Cossack auxiliaries have been used to support and augment the local police forces within Russia, most notably at the Sochi 2014 Olympic Winter Games, and Cossack paramilitary groups fought alongside Russian troops during the 2008 invasion of Georgia and in Russia's armed annexation of the Ukrainian Autonomous Republic of Crimea, 2014, as well as the subsequent Russian-backed insurgency in eastern Ukraine. Because the Cossacks are not identified or counted as a separate ethnicity, it's difficult to know just how many people today identify as being Cossacks in Russia, Ukraine, Belarus or Kazakhstan. There are 11 major Cossack societies registered in Russia, with a collective membership of around 150,000. And, according to the 2010 Russian census, some 68,000 people identify themselves as Cossacks. OK, that is it for this week, and that is it for this year. I'm going to be taking a couple of weeks just to put my feet up, and I'll be back in, well, some point early to mid-January. But don't worry, over the festive period, I'll be busy writing episodes and preparing the Patreon subscriber offering. Well, that's the plan anyway. But as I've said on many previous occasions, we plan and God laughs, so who knows, anything could happen. I also want to say a big thanks to everyone who throughout the year wrote in with a question, a comment, a review, a kind word or a critique and yeah, I had a few of those. Your support really kept me going guys and I really appreciate the time and effort that you took. It's amazing really when I think about it. So thank you again. So all that needs to be said now is whatever your traditions and whichever calendar you use, have a happy and a peaceful festive period. Stay safe, wrap up warm Look after yourselves, and I'll be back in early 2023 to do some more History of Russia. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.